everyone and welcome to Medium Cool, a movie podcast. I'm your host Austin Glidden and as always you can find us on social media on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter at Medium Cool Pod. That's facebook.com backslash Medium Cool Pod. You can search Medium Cool Pod on Instagram and we'll pop up and at Medium Cool Pod on Twitter. You can also email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. Please like, subscribe, follow all the things, leave us ratings and reviews wherever you're listening to this podcast. We really appreciate it. It really does help us content creators get stuff done. So thank you so much. Uh, today is kind of a big day because, uh, holy shit, guys, um, it is the 11th, at least whenever this drops. And five days ago, on January 6th, not only did Peter Bogdanovich die, and if you don't know who Peter Bogdanovich is, we're about to talk about him, and Sidney Poitier died. Now, I didn't know about Sidney Poitier until I recorded this, like the conversation with my friend Sam Watermeyer, who's on this episode, and so we didn't get a chance to really do much with it. I was like four days off or like three days off from like Sidney Poitier dying. I had no idea. How did I miss this? Anyway, so I found out about Peter Bogdanovich like a day or two after he died. And I was able to work that in. So today, my buddy Sam Watermeyer from the Indiana Film Journalist Association and Midwest Film Journal critic, uh, he and I are going to talk about, uh, we kind of forced this in actually kind of last minute. Uh, we're going to talk about Peter Bogdanovich's 1973 film Paper Moon, which I had never seen prior to this viewing, uh, and I watched it, uh, I don't even remember when I watched it, like a day before we recorded it, and uh, yeah, and then we got to talk about it, and it's more of a celebration of Peter Bogdanovich, because it is one of his most popular films. Um, the other one would be The Last Picture Show, which I've seen and I love, so uh, now I've seen... Uh, two of the popular Bogdanovich movies and love them. I've seen more of his stuff, but not like that stuff. Not like the stuff I think of when I think of Peter Bogdanovich. Uh, I think of those 70s black and white movies just about freaking humans. Anyways, so uh, so yeah, I want to do something on Sidney Poitier uh, in a few weeks. It'll be, of course, a little bit off, but uh, uh, as a kind of preview, I'm planning on having our top 10 of 2021. That's going to be Joe Shearer, Matthew Sosi, both of which are also Indiana Film Journalists Association members, and myself, the three of us, like last year, are going to do our top 10 films. We're also going to cut the time way down. We have a different format to try to help us do that because we're all a bit long-winded So because we just love movies. And anyways, uh, so uh, that that will be next week, and I'm planning, unless we can actually somehow cut it down to an episode, I'm planning on that being the next two weeks. We'll do our uh, 6 through 10 on the first episode and our 1 through 5 the following. And then the first show in February will be Joe and I, uh, so this is three weeks from now, Joe and I will be doing our most anticipated films of 2022. Top five, and I'm so excited. We did this last year as well. So then maybe the week after that, so a month from now, basically, uh, I want to do something with Sidney Poitier because he was such an important figure, incredibly important figure, especially uh, for the black community in white movies, you know, in the 50s. You know, <laughs> And some of those movies are still problematic, but the effect that it had in that time within that culture is undeniably important. And so uh, Sidney Poitier definitely deserves to have kind of a whole, 
maybe not a whole episode. Well, he does deserve a whole episode. I don't know if I will give him that, but um, we will definitely have a whole segment, at least at least one film, if not two, and make it a full episode um, because he was just that important. Uh, but today we are going to celebrate a little bit with Pete, uh, celebrating Peter Bogdanovich's life by talking about Paper Moon and a little bit about the filmmaker as well. Uh, he was a film historian like, whoa, he's like another Martin Scorsese or William Friedkin, just one of those guys that just knows everything about movies and befriended such classic you know, uh, filmmakers. We'll talk about that. But uh, yeah, so uh, also we're going to be, so I, on, on Facebook, uh, you know, I, I shared on my personal account uh, what Medium Cool put out, which was what we what I covered last week when I did a, another 2021 cram episode, and I had media or I had uh, the Matrix Resurrections that I talked about last week, and it was more of a word vomit. Let's be honest; most of those were kind of just like off the cuff word vomits, and so um, some of those I wanted to talk about some more. We I may at some point. But uh, whenever I posted it and I said that I went solo, Sam Watermeyer was like, uh, on my Facebook uh, comments, he was just like, oh, cool, you went solo. It's not like The Matrix isn't my favorite movie ever, you know, that kind of a thing. And uh, I was like, dude, it's probably better that you weren't on there because I thought The Matrix Resurrection sucks or sucked, you know. And he's just like, oh, God, you're so wrong. I would love to fight with you about this. And I was like, dude, come on next week then. Because I didn't really do it justice last week, and I'll actually give people a chance to hear someone's perspective that liked it, you know? So, hey, we're going to do Peter Bogdanovich's Paper Moon, and then after that, we are going to be looking at the Matrix Resurrections again, uh, and it's going to be a bit of a debate, almost, you know? Like, where there's clearly, you already know our sides. I don't like the movie. He does. So that's what that's going to be. That'd be a fun time. Uh, but yeah, so yeah, I'll probably talk a little bit more in the outro about what we plan to do in future episodes, but we have a pretty good month planned out from here on, so definitely, definitely come back to us. Uh, but now I want to go uh, see what Sam's up to and talk a little bit about Peter Bogdanovich and his 1973 film, Paper Moon. All right, everybody, I'm here with the uh, Indiana Film Journalist Association member and critic at Midwest Film Journal, Sam Watermeyer. He's been on here before. Say hi, Sam. Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me again, Austin. I appreciate it. Hey, you know what? It's my pleasure. Uh, Sam, you sound the best you ever have because you have a cool spiffy new microphone. Hell yeah. Hell yeah, dude. He knows where it's at now. All right. Um, yeah, I, so I wanted to step it up a bit for you. Well, you better. So, um, so I, I we just talked about this a little bit before we started recording, but uh, and I talked about this in the intro. But uh, Peter Bogdanovich died on January sixth, and you and I were going to meet up just to talk about the Matrix Resurrections, which we will be doing after this. Uh, but like a couple of days ago, I was like, dude, let's just fit in one of these movies. And I asked you what you were interested in watching. And I mentioned the last picture show in Paper Moon. And you mentioned like, dude, we should do Paper Moon. And that's what we're going to be covering here right now. Uh, Paper Moon is a film from 1973 directed by none other than Peter Bogdanovich, the late great Peter Bogdanovich, uh, written by Alvin Sargent. 
It's actually based on a book called Addie Prey by John David Brown. The cast, Ryan O'Neill, Tatum O'Neill, uh, Madeline Kahn, and John Hillerman. John Hillerman, uh, for those of you who don't know the name, is uh, from Magnum P.I., and he's like Magnum's like right-hand dude, which I, I just kept looking. I'm like, I know this guy. I know him. He's like so much younger looking, you know? <laughs> Uh, but anyways, uh, it was released May 9th, 1973, with a budget of $2.5 million, and it made $30.9 million. Huge. Oh, wow. Huge, okay? Uh, and watching a bunch of interviews and stuff, people kept asking uh, Peter Bogdanovich about, like, so why black and white? Which is so funny, because I feel like that's still the same conversation now if someone chooses to make a black and white movie. <laughs> it's like, but why? Sure. There's color. And I love just hearing Peter Bogdanovich <laughs> talk about his reasoning for things, you know, because he was talking about uh, with Last Picture Show, but this also applies for this film, about how when he would shoot things in color, it just looked too pretty. And he wanted things to look not grim, but just kind of like, uh, kind of, you know, not spiced up, not beautiful. It's supposed to look kind of average almost and just like real, right? And so he would use these black and white things. Um, that's just a tangent, but I was just, I've been watching a lot on him since he passed and, uh, so anyways, uh, Paper Moon takes place during the Great Depression where a con man finds himself saddled up with a young girl who may or may not be his daughter. Uh, and the two forge an unlikely partnership. The con man is Moses Prey, played by Ryan O'Neill, and the younger girl, Addie, played by Tatum O'Neill, real life daughter of Ryan. And the film begins with the funeral of Addie's mother. And Moses, who has a history with her mother, decides to take the little girl, who's now an orphan, basically, uh, to her only known relative in Missouri after, you know, pretty much being guilted into it by a bunch of old ladies. So, uh, you know, uh, he eventually cons the brother of the man who indirectly caused Addie's mom's death. Uh, and once Moses gets $200 from this guy, essentially conning him into it, uh, Addie had overheard the transaction and demands the money to herself. And uh, then they set off on the road looking for ways for the con man, who has already spent the $200 before they leave, to basically make this money back so that Addie doesn't tell the police on him. This movie is like, what is it, PG? Yeah, it's PG, which PG-13 didn't exist at the time, but I think this would still possibly be PG, especially for that time. It is like kind of an everybody movie. It, I, I'm surprised how much I loved this, Sam. And I'll talk more about that. But Sam, I know you love this movie. I now love this movie too. It's just the greatest, okay? Uh, I am a huge fan of The Last Picture Show as well, also directed by Peter Bogdanovich. But Paper Moon is special. So my question to you is, do you agree with that? And if so, why do you think so? Interesting. Um, <clears throat> well, I had actually first seen this movie... Uh, when I was just a little kid, um, probably like eight or nine. And um, I think it does have kind of a timeless quality that appeals to all ages. Um, you know, it, it's kind of a quirky, you know, buddy road comedy. Um, uh, but I appreciate it now in the sense that I can kind of see how the uh, black and white sort of represents the moral ambiguity of the characters especially you know ryan o'neill's character he's basically a con man um and uh you know his, his daughter grows to or well 
supposedly his daughter, uh, grows to be, um, you know, a bit of a swindler too. Thinking about it now, it kind of reminds me of uh, Matchstick Men um, with uh, the Ridley Scott film with uh, Nicolas Cage and Alison Lohman. Uh, Nicolas Cage is, is, you know, a con man and he teaches um, his daughters or his daughter, uh, you know, the, the ways of his uh, trade. Um, I think it's also, uh, you can see it as a movie that signals the transition from old Hollywood to new Hollywood in terms of uh, focusing on, you know, more morally dubious characters. Um, that's kind of how I define new Hollywood. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I would say that's part of what makes it special. Yeah, I, I do want to talk about what you just said, actually, is the idea of new and old Hollywood, because I think this is like such a great example of both of those things. You know, when I was watching the movie last night, um, which I had never seen before, everybody, and uh, but it's always been on my radar. It's been a movie because I love The Last Picture Show so much, and I love just listening to Peter Bogdanovich just talk about movies because he's such a fan. Like he's he's like the he's like Martin Scorsese or William Friedkin, like those guys that just watched like a million movies and have just learned film through the experience of not only doing but watching. And um, as you know, coming from Ball State, not to not to speak ill of Ball State because I love our alma mater, um, but a lot of the production students didn't have that same knowledge as a lot of these these new Hollywood filmmakers who were not only doing but watching. And so it's so it's so refreshing to watch somebody like Bogdanovich make a movie, and it probably just came naturally. He probably would look back at, at Paper Moon and go, ah, "I could have done all this better," right? As a filmmaker. But he just knew how to do the thing. And um, and so when I was watching it, my, that was a tangent. The whole point is when I was watching it, I just kept thinking, man, this feels older than 1973. And it's not just because of taking place during the Great Depression or, you know, uh, the black and white. It wasn't just that. It's the way it was shot. Like a lot of the shots even look like European shots from like the 50s. <laughs> You know, like you can tell Bogdanovich yeah. watched a lot. You know, there's a point where it just does a super close up that almost looks like a, like a Bergman shot or something of this store owner. And then it cuts over his mm. shoulder with this like long depth of field. And you see Ryan O'Neill's uh, Moses come into the building. But the guy in the front, you see the back and over his shoulder and it's all in focus. And it's just like, dude, this is old school. Like this yeah, is yeah. all old school. So it's not just because it's black and white. I mean, the way it's shot and everything. You know, I wrote down if this if they made proper independent films in the 1940s, this would be like that. You know, like, you know, like it didn't yeah. clearly didn't have like the budget or like, um, you know, all of the resources put into like studio pictures during the production code. But like if there were independent films made, though, this is what those would look like to me. And and it, on, it, to an extent, it feels really faithful to movies from, say, the 40s that would be looking back at the Great Depression and making stuff like that, like The Grapes of Wrath or any of those movies, right? This feels, content-wise and everything, like an older movie. But like you said, it's doing things that they would not have gotten away from. You'd never get, like, a nine-year-old girl smoking in, in a movie. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, you know, because Tatum O'Neill's character smokes all the time, you know? And, uh, like... 
I just, I, I love the balance that they have. And that's one of my favorite things about movies that are made even today. If someone's trying to really kind of harken back to a pastime in film, but they can elevate it or at least evolve it by using modern either techniques or storytelling that you couldn't have done then, um, I, oh. I tend to really like that. Not always, but when done well, I, I usually react very strongly to it. And this is a perfect example uh, of that thing. And uh, I, I do want to say this, and I'm going to pass it off to you after I, after I say this here. Um, I think the writing in this movie is so good. Uh, like, like that's kind of the, the cornerstone of this movie to me. Of course, the performances I'll get to in a second, but Alvin Sargent's writing here is so good. Did, yeah. did, do you respond to that writing here? Like, is that something that stands out to you? Oh yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, the, the interplay between uh, Ryan O'Neill and Tatum O'Neill um, is as much a credit to the writing as to their performances. Um, and, uh, you know, Alvin Sargent, for those who don't know, is a very versatile writer. I mean, um, not only did he write this, but he also uh, wrote uh, Spider-Man 2. I was about to say. Um, Multiple um, Spider-Mans. And I believe Ordinary People, is that right? Yep. Um, and what about Bob? He did the story too, which is also fun. But go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I love What About Bob. Me too. Um <laughs> <laughs> he has such a the point to make your point he has an incredible history of writing credits like if you just look yeah. like i just open it up again and i'm looking through it and it's like dude this guy rules but continue please yeah um <clears throat> what's uh what's interesting about the the father daughter um dynamic is that it seemed like they, uh, like Bogdanovich was always going for a really genuine dynamic, um, uh, even before the casting of Ryan and Tatum O'Neill. I believe uh, Paul Newman was originally cast with his daughter, um, uh, Nell Potts. Um, but I think, uh, you know, you don't even really need a, a real life father and daughter because the, the writing um really makes that relationship already feel incredibly genuine yeah 100 percent. yeah and and i'd heard i'd heard that i didn't know that they were actually going to cast newman's daughter as well i didn't know that but i did yeah. know uh that he was uh considered and it's also really great because uh he would have blown this out of the just completely out of the water too you know what i mean like just oh, yeah. knowing his characters that he plays and everything he would do this so well i think you know, tying the writing, like, so what the performances bring to me is, and Bogdanovich knew this, the performances are really bringing the, the, uh, um, what's the word, uh, not connection, but there's a chemistry, right? There, mm -hmm. It kind of brings this chemistry that makes all the writing feel a certain way. So I, I tend to give Sargent most of the credit with, in terms of what's happening, because like Tatum O'Neill doesn't even have to be a good actor. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> because <laughs> the lines are so good that you'd probably just kind of forgive because it's a kid, you know, even though she does a great hey. job. But uh, man, the, the, like when they're arguing about the $200 in this cafe, there's mm -hmm. a scene, everybody, if you haven't seen it, 
where Ryan O'Neill and Tatum O'Neill's characters, Moses and Addie, are sitting at this diner. Moses just got Addie. He just took her to the train station. She's going to send this, like, I think she's nine in the movie. I can't remember. But this nine-year-old girl, I'll stick with that for now. He uh, is going to put her on a train, and she's going to have to connect to another train and then end up at her aunt's house and um, or in that city, and then her aunt was supposed to pick her up. So he spends all this money to do this, but they have plenty of time, so they go to this diner. And uh, at the diner, they're sitting there, and she has these big coney dogs, you know, uh, and she's just not eating. She's just staring a hole straight through Moses. And Moses is like, eat your conies. You know, eat your Coney Islands, he keeps calling them or something like that, you know. And uh, and he's just eating like pie. It just looks like he's eating whipped cream, but I'm assuming it's pie. <laughs> like, I can't quite tell what it is. But um, but he's he, it just looks like he's just scooping whipped cream off this plate. Uh, but anyways, uh, you know, he's eating. And they get into this argument because... Because uh, Addie believes that Moses is her dad because they have the same jaw, like the same jawline. Oh. <laughs> and and uh, everyone keeps going like, but you have the same jaw. And so Moses is like, there's no way. I met your mom, like, but there's no, just because we meet in a bar doesn't mean that you have a kid or whatever. And she's like, well, it might. It's possible, you know, and they're arguing back and forth. And then eventually she shuts him up by Addie saying, well, then if you're not my pa, I want my $200. And he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not how this works. You wouldn't be anywhere without me. And he goes through this whole rigmarole of like justifying why he's basically spent all of her money. And then she goes, if you don't give him my $200, I'm going to go to a policeman and tell him that you stole it from me. And that's the basis of the movie, right? <laughs> but this argument, yeah. the, when, when she drops the $200 line each time, even later in the film, because it's a recurring... Uh, line that she'll drop to motivate Moses to do certain things. And uh, that is just like, that's like such a subtle comedy. You know what I mean? Like there's just like yeah. this comedy to it, this timing where you almost forget about the $200. Cause, cause of course, Addie starts getting into these cons and, and Moses is moving, you know, working people. And we'll talk about those cons here in a moment. But uh, whenever Addie gets worked up or she's, you know, ready for Moses to do something else. She's like, all right, fine. Give me my $200 and I'll leave. But there's always a reason why they run out of money. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> and it's just perfect. Well, I mean, it, there's just like this constant motivation and, 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 uh, and movement of the story. What were you going to say? Oh, I was just going to say, well, the fact that she uses the $200 against him is a, is a brilliant way of showing how they're both cut from the same cloth, you know, yeah. like they're, they're both, um, kind of swindlers um, in a sense. And it, it's a great way of showing, you know, how they have this connection um, yeah. because, you know, she's just as smooth as, as he is in terms of, uh, you know, being kind of a con artist herself. Yeah. You know, she's, uh, she's ahead of her time. Both in the movie and out of the movie, I feel like you know what I mean. Um, yeah. Like I mean, the smoking part of it, you know. There's a point where, because I thought she's just gonna puff on this and blow the smoke out. There's a point where it straight up looked like she's just inhaling the smoke and blowing it out. Right. I don't know if that's true, but it, I bought it. I was a smoker for five years, and I'm like, no, that looks real. Because <laughs> you can always tell when <laughs> someone puffs and then just blows it out. You know what I mean? But uh, sure. man, she she was believable. But that's neither here nor there. Uh, th these cons. Let's talk about these real quick because 
we were just kind of talking about how they're both cut from the same cloth. They're both swindlers, and we see that in spades. And and I, I want to kind of make a progression here. Um, for everyone at home, if again, if you haven't seen this or if you have, here's a refresher. One of the big cons where they start is, is Moses um, reads the newspapers in these different towns and finds these women who have lost their husbands recently. And he gathers all the information he needs from these obituaries, and then he goes to their house uh, ready to sell, like he's bringing a quote-unquote deluxe Bible <laughs> uh, to give to the late husband, whom in his as his character that he's playing, basically, you know, he acts like he doesn't know the husband's dead, so he's just delivering this Bible, and then he's supposed to collect the money. So when he shows up, he already knows the names, so he's engraving them with this, like, he has this, like, iron uh, thing that you can put different letters on. He kind of engraves them with the wife's names. So whenever he offers the wife and says, oh, well, you don't have to take it then. I'll just, I'll just take the hit. It's not a problem. And they're like, well, no, my husband, like, put my name on it. I have to have it. So then he'd be like, all right, well, then I guess that'd be $8, which is ridiculous for the Great Depression, right? Like that in the 30s. It's crazy. Yeah. So th that's 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 the that's the con is he basically cons these widows <laughs> into buying Bibles that he claims their late husbands bought for them, right? And then he upcharges <laughs> them a ridiculous amount. And of course, uh, Addie gets drawn into this, and she actually ends up liking it. Uh, she has fun throughout the movie. She's like, "We can go back to buying Bibles," you know, <laughs> like all that stuff, you know. Um, and and I just I just. I, I wrote a note during that whole opening kind of sequence of, of cons that I, I just put, I love their con. It's so great because it's yeah. such a, it's such a clearly there was thought put into this con. Do you get what I mean? Like, like Moses isn't a stupid man. Now he might not be the brightest, but he has thought through this enough and he's done it enough that he's kind of perfected the story. And what's the worst case? They did not, they say they don't want to buy it. So then he just leaves. Like he's not out anything yeah. really. Right. But he could make a lot of money. And then you have again, cut from the same cloth, Addie, who is this like, basically she's analyzing through their doorway, different things in their house to see how wealthy they are, you know, or mm. how poor they are. And when they're poor, she's like, no, Paul, he already paid for it, you know, <laughs> you know, and like they give it to him for free, but then she'll get like 24 bucks from someone for this Bible because they look rich. And and it, it's amazing how they start to kind of play together. Not only is that just telling you who their characters are, but it's starting to show that, man, they could really work together here, that they could actually be oh, yeah. a part of this. And, and honestly, like what great casting to actually get a father and daughter so that there is some resemblance to some extent, right? Uh, but yeah. at the same time, he can still deny it. Um, but yeah, I like. What do you make of these cons? We can even move further and talk about others if you want. But um, what do you think of these cons, man? Well, I think uh, the the Bible con is just so kind of deliciously slimy. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's, he's basically preying upon widows. Um, I mean, like you said, you know, they could always not accept it and he could just move on. But uh, I think um, that, you know, the sort of uh, sleaziness of it um, is definitely representative of how we're moving into new Hollywood here. 
um, with some, you know, serious moral dubiousness. Um, I, I mean, it, it's a pretty sleek, it's a pretty slimy con. Um, but I also think the fact that, uh, you know, Tatum O'Neill takes to it so smoothly, um, kind of speaks toward, uh, children's special ability to sort of not give a fuck. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> um, uh, you know, I think children have kind of uh, like brutal honesty and, um, you know, like you said, she can see who's rich. She can see who's poor. Um, uh, you know, and I think that's interesting, too, because she's bringing some sort of uh, she has some uh, conscience about it. Um in, in terms of, you know, not wanting to prey upon certain people. Um, but uh, I, I, I think above all else, it kind of, the con shows how um, the movie is definitely signaling the transition into new Hollywood. You know, you have this, this sort of warm comedic relationship between a father and daughter, but there's also kind of a, uh, you know, a, a corruption beneath, which um, is indicative of a lot of movies of, of the 70s. Yeah, I, I, I will say and I'm going to speak a little vaguely because I am going to leave a little of this to the audience for them to see. But one of the cons, I'll call it that we'll just say Moses isn't involved in as the con artist, but more as the victim. Because Addie and this uh, traveling companion that Moses brings along, who basically has an assistant, quote unquote, but she, uh, you know, it's it takes place in the 30s and this poor black woman is being treated, you know, just like a servant. You know what I mean? Um, right. But uh, I love the banter between Addie and uh, I, I free Imogene, I think's her name, uh, the, the assistant. Yep. And it's really great. But um Basically, Addie's trying to get rid of this this companion that uh, that Moses has, and and what you learn is she's learned a lot from Moses. She's learned how to do these cons now, so much so that she can con him. You know what I mean? <laughs> and and I just I really love that. But you were talking about how it's such a a, a tell of the new Hollywood movement, and uh, the, that is very true. And and just to kind of make that point as well. In 1947, and I'm sure you've seen this, if I had to guess. You can tell me if you haven't. But Charlie Chaplin made a, a talkie uh, called Merceau Verdu. This is a Criterion Collection movie as well. And uh, this kick-started a whole lot of stuff. The Ealing Studios in London were, like, hugely influenced by this with the original Lady Killers and Kind Hearts and Coronets and movies like that. And and Charlie Chaplin with Merceau Verdu... Uh, he plays this sleazy con artist who, again, basically meets these rich widows, <laughs> like these women that uh, basically inherited a ton of money from their dead husbands, and they have so much they don't know what to do with. And so Chaplin's, uh, what's his name? Let me let me look it up real quick. It's uh, um, Henry Verdu. Uh, Henry basically marries these women under an alias and then murders them by poisoning them or pushing them off a, out a window or like whatever, um, and then inherits their money. So that's like his con. 
And that is as sleazy as, like, that's the worst. You know, like, you can see where the Lady Killers kind of gets its influence from a film like this. And I think sure. of a movie like that in 1947, which was shocking to people. It was controversial. I mean, Chaplin, who was this beloved character, is now doing these kind of really heinous things. Prior to that, he did The Great Dictator seven years before. Uh, so he had, you know, kind of a, a stint of time where he's basically just remastering his old movies. And uh, so it's it's really interesting to see something like that in 47 that was so... If it weren't Chaplin, it would have never been made. You know what I mean? Like, he had enough clout <laughs> to make a movie like that. Yeah. And then you get Paper Moon. And in 73, this was nothing. We're watching a war in full color on TV, okay? <laughs> right. Like, in 1973, we don't give a fuck about... Like this guy conning these widows. <laughs> I mean, people would think it's wrong, but I mean, it's not shocking like it would have been sure. then. And so I think that's a big part of that new Hollywood. You know what I mean? It's it can You could argue it's also borrowing from the old, but it's taking it in a direction that you wouldn't have gotten back then. Maybe unless Chaplin decided to make it, <laughs> you know, mm. something like that. But aside from that, you're not getting this. Um, and it just, I don't know, man. I just really, really loved this story um, about these two. You know, this this uh, con artist and this little girl who's an orphan now, just trying to get to her aunts. At the very beginning, when they first meet, she says, uh, "You don't like me, do you, Moses?" And he's like, "No, no, I don't." <laughs> you know. And then by the <laughs> end, seeing their relationship evolve and. And, uh, you know, and it's not even that unique, especially for 2022, you know, mm. we've seen a ton of movies where that happens, you know, uh, even something like, you know, uh, like, uh, I haven't seen the Channing Tatum movie dog. Okay. But here's what I guess is going to mm. happen. Are you ready? Uh, big shocker. He's going to hate this fucking dog when he first gets it. But by the time he has to get rid of the dog, <laughs> he's going to love it and not want to. And we've seen this right. story over and over in different packagings, right? But this works so much better. And and it reminds me of, I feel like I'm hijacking this conversation. I'm going to pass it off to you here in a second. But it reminds me of uh, uh, Billy Wilder's The Apartment. Uh, have you seen The Apartment? Interesting. Oh, yes. Uh, it's one of my all-time favorite, top 10 easy. I love that movie. But that is, to AT, the romantic comedy formula that we have today. But then, oh, yeah. in that in that specific instance, it was written specifically where it would only work that way. It has a purpose for fulfilling that now that what we would now call the template, right? But it has a reason for those things rather than us forcing stories into a template and it doesn't really work. Um, and this one's that way where it takes a template. We've seen this before. We know how this works, right? But it's done in a way where it has to work this way. And it works so fluidly and perfectly that I can't fault it in any way in terms of the story. I think it's just, I just think it's a perfect story. Um, before yeah. I move on from the story, anything you want to touch on with, with kind of the narrative of the film? Uh, I kind of want to piggyback off of your uh, comment comparing it to films of today. I mean... I can even see shades of Paper Moon. This might this may sound like a stretch, but I can see shades of it in uh, even something like Come On, Come On. Sure. Um, you know, uh, I mean, the comparison's kind of obvious. You know, black and white. Um, someone 
entering into a relationship with a child that's kind of rocky at first, but, you know, becomes more comf- uh, comfortable and loving. Um, you know, I mentioned Matchstick Men. Um, so I had actually never considered this movie as sort of, or I had never considered Paper Moon as sort of a, a template um, before, but, uh, you know, you can definitely see its influence um, over the years. Man, how good is that movie? Come on, come on. Did you love that movie? Oh, oh, I loved it. I actually watched it. Um, like five seconds so, before you had to vote on it, right? Yeah, I it ended five minutes before the IFJA meeting, and I was just, I had to clean the mess that it made of my face <laughs> because uh, it was just, it just ripped my heart out. I can't um, wait for but, you to, uh, I can't wait for you to see my top 10. That's oh, I'm, I'm uh, yeah, I'm curious. That's what I'm going to say. Um, because it's not number one. <laughs> okay. But it may make an appearance. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I'm, Listeners, I'm you didn't yeah. hear that. The point is, um, this is such a great story. Um, and the, the performances, I, I want to talk about the performances, and I want to talk about Bogdanovich a, a bit at large. Um, but sure. uh, I, I want to talk about the performances real quick before we move on. I think, listen, I, I like Ryan O'Neill. Um, I like Ryan O'Neill. Dude, I, I mean, in uh, Barry Lyndon, like, I, I am a, oh, I am I love a, Barry Lyndon. He, dude, that makes me so happy because Barry Lyndon's one of those movies that people watch and they're like, oh, I like Kubrick, but that one's slow. And to me, I oh, was no. riveted. I'm like watching this thing, and when they have duels and stuff, I'm literally, literally edge of my seat, like, this is incredible, you know. Um, I'm, a, but of oh, course, yeah. I'm a big Stanley Kubrick mark, so it's it's totally fine. Um, but uh, yeah, like Ryan O'Neill is in a lot of good and or big movies, because um, <laughs> uh, not all of them have to be good big movies. But he's in some <laughs> things, right? Um, and I like him in Bart or Barton Fink and Barry Lyndon. Um, you know, he's in What's Up, Doc, and Love Story, and, and all of these others. But in this one, something really works for me. Because when Ryan O'Neill has to play a believable character, as in s- someone that we would meet on the street in reality, right? Not a character in a movie, but he's trying to be believable. Like a, a De Niro in a lot of movies where he's just super method and he's doing all these things. Or or Michael Corleone in The Godfather where he feels kind of like this tangible person. Uh, not to say they're not characters, but I think you get what I'm saying. Uh, Ryan O'Neill never works for me in that way. But the fact that this movie <laughs> makes him very much a character... You know what I'm saying? Like it's it is very much a character. The rhythm of the of the of the dialogue, um, the way he talks, even that feels aged almost. You know, like the way people interact yeah. with one another almost feels aged. But I mean that as a compliment. It feels really good. Um, but I'm looking at a picture right now on IMDb, and he's so mad, yelling at Addy right now. <laughs> <laughs> like, like just the way he gets worked up and the way he like kind of trips over his words and he tries to argue with this nine year old, but she's just a little too precocious for him to get one up on her. Right. Because she can kind of almost beat him at his own kind of talking game, you know, and uh, man, these these performances, these two in particular, because the rest of them are good. Like, I'm it's fine. But man, I thought Ryan O'Neill and Tatum O'Neill were just exceptional 
for this specific movie. Tell me, tell me when you watched this last, how do you respond to these performances, Ben? Well, I think uh, so much of the humor lies in, in how much she, you know, one ups him. Oh yeah. And I think he, he's, you know, trying to be this smooth con artist and what's more frustrating than, uh, you know, being a con artist and being one up by a child. Um, you know, he, he's used to, you know, seeing a, a sucker born every minute and she just doesn't take his shit. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, great to see. And, uh, um, you know, she's such a, um, kind of, she delivers such, uh, Tatum O'Neill delivers such a, you know, tender yet kind of tough performance. It's, um, you know, you use the word precocious. She, she does seem kind of wise beyond her years. And I think was, uh, she actually made history with this. Wasn't she the youngest person to ever win an Oscar for best actress? I'm going to confirm it, but I believe so. Yep. I was going to mention that. Yep. Yep. She was, uh, um, yeah. At the age of 10 became the youngest winner ever. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I don't know if that has ever been topped unless uh, Anna Paquin was older when she won for the piano. Well, so so here's a here's a a an addendum to what I just said. Uh, I'll read this. Tatum O'Neill at age ten became the youngest ever uh, winner ever in a competitive category. That's that's the key because mm. Shirley Temple had won an honorary award at age six in 1935. I do not count that. Um, I believe that Taylor sure. O'Neill won. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, you know, I mean, it, it's a pretty complex character for, for a kid. I mean, she's, um, you know, obviously has innocence, but she's kind of corrupted by this man and not so much corrupted. It's like, you get the sense that, uh, she kind of inherently has a talent for being a bit of a con artist herself, um, which is an interesting quality for a kid to have. Sure. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think these are two of, I don't think this is a terribly bold thing to say, but yeah, I think these are two like all time great performances. So good, man. Uh, yep. And uh you know, in terms of other performances that we get a little bit, we get a really young uh, Noble Willingham who was, uh, you got, everyone would know this guy if you saw his face. He was in all kinds of stuff. He was in City Slickers. He was in Walker, Texas Ranger. If you ever watched that, I grew up watching that with my grandparents. <laughs> uh, he's in The Last Boy Scout, The Howl, all kinds of stuff. This guy, again, you would know this guy if you saw his face, if you're not familiar with just the name. Um, but it was really cool to see him so young. Again, the Magnum P.I. dude, uh, Ed Reed, again, a face you would probably know. Um, but I'm trying to remember. Let me find Randy Quaid. When, so Randy Quaid was also in yeah. The Last Picture Show two years prior to this. Randy Quaid is also uh, Eddie from Christmas Vacation, if you're familiar with that, the really gross dude. Uh, <laughs> the guy who wears a speedo to the pool, but also tucks his shirt into it. Um, shitter's full. Yeah, shitter's full. Um, which Tatum O'Neill in this movie goes, Paul, I need to go to the shit house. 
<laughs> which actually got a pop out of me because I thought that was like really funny. Um, but yeah, Randy Quaid wrestles Ryan O'Neal in this movie, which he wrestles him. He wrestles him, uh, which was so weird. Like when I saw him, I'm like, oh god, they really put him in like the cliche Randy Quaid. Like, what else is Randy Quaid gonna do other than being like, you know, um, what's the uh, Jack Nicholson Hal Ashby movie where they're Navy sailors? Um, the last detail. Yeah, the, yeah. Outside of the last detail, and you know, the last picture show, where I think he is still a bit of a uh, a hick. Um, basically, I feel like Randy Quaid was born at that point in his life to just be some like backwoods redneck or something. You know, not that I think he should have been, but it's just <laughs> yeah. like I feel like I see him in those roles. Uh, but yeah, it, this movie is so great. Um, I love it just to the moon. And back, get that paper. Oh, God, it's really bad. (laughs) Anyways, uh, I would not put that in a written review. The point is, um, Paper Moon is awesome. Uh, Any last words about Paper Moon? Because I will tell people where they can see it. But I want you to uh, let us know any last final words you want to say about this movie. Oh, uh, well, could I just talk a little bit about Bogdanovich in general? Oh, we forgot about that. Okay, yeah, please. Bogdanovich. What is your experience with him? That was going to be my lead into you. You can say whatever you want, but I was curious, like, what your experience is with, like, his movies and stuff. Do you have any history with him? I actually do have a bit of a history. I, um, I, my first real exposure to him was uh, attending um, a, an IMA screening uh, back when it was the Indianapolis Museum of Art uh, screening of Touch of Evil. Um, he was, uh, big buds with Orson Welles and he, um, and I think that it was a special anniversary of the movie. I don't remember how old it was at that point, but, um, it was a screening of touch of evil. He did a lecture beforehand, um, and told some, some funny stories about, uh, Orson Welles. Um, and my favorite was, uh, he talked about going grocery shopping with him one time. And uh, Orson Welles says, said, uh, um, uh, you don't gain any weight if no one sees you eating. I thought that was funny. <laughs> um, um, but uh, what else? Um, he, uh, he's kind of famously quoted for saying that um, if you've never seen a movie before then it's not an old movie it's a new movie and i thought that was kind of a great philosophy yeah i love uh he was talking about you know exposing um you know young viewers to older movies and and just kind of i i thought that was a great way to look at them you know they can still be new discoveries um so that was really cool to see him in person um uh, deliver that lecture and introduce that screening. It was also my first time seeing Touch of Evil. So seeing that on the big screen was incredible. Um, and he talked about how he talked about, you know, contemporary filmmakers that he kind of considers the the Orson Welles of today. Uh, I think he mentioned Paul Thomas Anderson um, um, as one of those. Uh, but um yeah i that was my like 
first kind of somewhat close interaction with with his work i had but i had seen paper moon as a kid um and it has you know stayed with me since then um but i i think he's you know a really interesting figure in in cinema like you said he has uh, a real reverence for film in the same way that you know martin scorsese does um he you know appreciates cinema new and old um i think with paper moon and the last picture show in particular he has delivered these sort of classic slices of americana um uh yeah i i don't know what else to say but i uh you know, he uh, he was a very influential figure. One hundred percent. The the guy worked both as an actor and a director all the way up. I mean, he uh, currently as a director, he has a movie in pre production, which doesn't look real good for that movie. Uh, but um, you know, up until <laughs> twenty eighteen for directing, and uh, as of last year, he was acting in something. So I mean, this guy was still working all the way up in his first film. Uh, in terms of like full feature was from 1968, which is called Targets. And I think I own that back there. I think it has Boris Karloff in it. Um, let me double check that. Yeah, Boris Karloff's in it. Um, and I, I, if I'm not mistaken, this is about the... Um, uh, it's based on the uh, sniper shootings in Texas. Um, for some reason, I'm failing huh. to remember uh, where the guy was in the tower and he's just like picking people off. This is not a direct biopic of that, but it was inspired uh, by events like that, I think, or maybe it's vice versa. Maybe that guy was inspired by this. I can't really remember, to be honest. But um, either way, it's a movie like that where a dude has a sniper rifle and and he's picking people off. And and like I said, Boris Karloff's in it, which is fun. That was his first feature. His second, um, or I guess third his second credited feature, because he did one where he was credited as Derek Thomas, which is hilarious. Um, but in 1971, mm-hmm. right before the last picture show, he released "Directed by John Ford," which is a documentary that I've, uh, I actually have a copy of, and still I've never watched it. I've probably had this for like 15 years. I need to just sit <laughs> down and watch it. Maybe this would be the motivation to make it a priority. Uh, the last picture show he did Paper Moon. I'm only naming a few. He did Mask from 1985, um, which was a popular, oh, that's right. yeah, yeah, a very very popular movie of the time. Um, and uh, he did one, and this is probably the first Bogdanovich movie I saw in 2001. I bought a copy of or rented it or something from Blockbuster, and it's called The Cat's Meow, starring uh, Kirsten Dunst, and uh, and. Carrie Elwes and uh, a whole bunch of people, um, as he, uh, huh. Eddie Izzard's in it, which is also fun. But anyways, uh, it's like an an old period piece. Uh, I don't remember the movie like at all. This is probably in like two thousand four or something. Um, a long time ago, someone told me to see it. But um, yeah, this dude was just involved in everything. Like you said, super influential guy but i think when i think of peter bogdanovich i think of uh the type of people i wish were in the world and i don't know him personally or his personal life i don't know how good or bad of a person he was in terms of just being a human but man i really admire his ability to kind of soak in movies and understand and be able to not only translate that into his own filmmaking um, but also just to talk about i mean this dude made 
he used to tour universities and just talk about film because that's what he loved, you know, and he was still making yeah. movies and everything. But I know a lot of people like you who saw him either just speaking or introducing something and none of you saw the same one. <laughs> like I had like my mm. buddy Jake uh, Bottolieri went to the American Film Institute, AFI, and he visited there. And so he saw him there. I had someone else see him in Chicago. I had someone else see him, blah, blah, blah. You know, like all of these people saw him. He was just one of those dudes, not unlike a William Friedkin or someone like that, who just started like traveling around and talking about movies and doing what they love. And and like you said, I mean, this guy became friends with people like Orson Welles and Howard Hawks. Dude, dude became friends with Hitchcock, dude. Like who gets to say yeah. that? You know what I'm saying? I mean, this guy was just... He was everywhere, and uh, I just really uh, love I, – I, I love Peter Bogdanovich a lot. I remember watching – last thing I'll say, I remember watching The Sopranos, and there's a point where uh, he plays – I've already forgotten her name uh, – Lorraine Bracco. Yeah, I thought that's what it was, but it didn't sound uh, right. But, yeah, Elaine Bracco. And did I say that right? For some reason, that still doesn't sound right. It doesn't matter. Anyways. Yeah, Lorraine Bracco. Yep. Yeah. Well, uh, her therapist, of course, sees another therapist, and her therapist <laughs> is Peter Bogdanovich. And I remember um, I had already, I already knew who he was. He has such a distinct look, like you can't mistake Bogdanovich for someone else. And I'm sitting here watching, and he pops on the screen, and it just fills me with joy, you know, to see <laughs> this guy. I just love him so much. So anyways, um, you can check out Paper Moon if you've never seen it, or if you have and you want to revisit it on Amazon Prime, it's free if you have a subscription. Uh, otherwise, you can like rent it in a million different places. I'm telling you, this is, uh, man, it's hard to say it's probably one of the best films in 1973 because just that whole era had so many good ones. I'd have to look at a freaking list, yeah. all right? It probably wouldn't even make the top <laughs> 10 this was such a good era. However... Um, it is just one of those great classics, and I hope people go check it out. It's one that I put off for way too long, and unfortunately it took his death to motivate me to put it on a priority uh, list. So, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's our thing about Paper Moon. We're going to come back here in a moment, and we are going to talk about a film that I talked about last week. But then I found out that Sam and I have two very different perspectives on this. That movie is The Matrix Resurrections. We'll be right back. Well, one is right and one is wrong. <laughs> the Matrix Resurrections again from 2021. Now last year, Sam, last year. Uh, directed, uh, I'll, I'll just run through this again. I'm not going to give a full synopsis or anything because we've already, uh, I've already done that on last week's episode, but uh, directed by Lana Wachowski, written by Lana Wachowski, at least the characters and stuff come from her, and uh, also David Mitchell and Alexander Hemmen. Uh, the cast, Keanu Reeves, Carrie Ann Moss, um, oh God, I always forget, Yahya Abdul-Mateen II. Uh, I, I, when I see it, I always pause, but I feel like I get it right. I'm not sure. Anyways, Jonathan Groff, Neil Patrick Harris, Jada Pinkett Smith, <laughs> and a small appearance by Christina Ricci. Um, the uh, the synopsis on Letterboxd, at least, which is all I put on here, I believe. I might have added some to it, but uh, plagued by strange memories, Neo's life takes an unexpected turn when he finds himself back in the Matrix. Uh, <laughs> we get Trinity back, Niobe too, uh, Agent 
agent, quote, Agent Smith, uh, played by Jonathan Groff, uh, the analyst, played by Neil Patrick Harris, uh, who's a new villain, um, lots of stuff. I talked about this film last week, like I said, and um, whenever I posted about it, you gave me shit for not asking you on because The Matrix is one of your favorite series in general. Uh, correct me yeah. if I'm wrong, but that's what I think I understood from from your comments. And so we we gave each other shit back and forth. And then uh, eventually I was on. I was like, "Bring it, fight me, motherfucker!" <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and I decided to bring you on this week um, because uh, I just wanted to hear uh, your thoughts on this. So, uh, like I said, you know, I've I've talked to you about this. Um, Sam, you're a fan of this, and as our listeners know, I was not. Uh, so I have a simple question for you, Sam. Are you ready for it? Yes. Why? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, first I want to correct you. This, uh, the matrix isn't only one of my favorite, uh, film franchises. Uh, the first film is my all time favorite movie. Real quick, real quick correction. The good one is your favorite movie. I got it. Yeah. <laughs> no. Um, okay, you're already wrong, making me really upset. Um, the Matrix sequels rock, including this one. Okay, um, so uh, <clears throat> I'm just going to go ahead and talk about this with spoilers um, because I feel like I kind of have to um, in order to answer your question of why I found this movie amazing. Um, then, okay, real quick, so, b- before you jump into it, then, uh, folks, you can see this on HBO Max. Um, I am yes. going to encourage Sam not to do deliberate spoilers, but if you get into it and, and you do, okay, and if you do spoilers, that's fine. I'm just yes. disclaimer to everyone if you have not seen this yet, you can go check it out on HBO Max. If you want to pause this and go watch it before you hear it, this is your chance. Um, so it is done. So, Sam. Though I don't think we're going to try to spoil it, it's free game now, dude. It's fair game, rather. So, continue. And I mean, I'll talk about it, you know, in in broad strokes as well, but I also want to mention a few plot details. Um, So, the premise of the movie is that um, Neo is back in the matrix as his original identity of Thomas Anderson. And within the matrix, he is a uh, game designer who has designed a game called the matrix based on his experiences in the first film. And um, he, you know, when he's taken back into the real world, he kind of wrestles with the fact that he turned his life story into a video game. He refu- he refers to it as something trivial. Um, and I thought that was kind of brilliant because it reflects the way that, uh, that the first film, what that film prophesized basically came th- true through similarly trivial stuff like social media. I mean, I feel like the I feel like Facebook is a sort of simulated society, not terribly unlike the Matrix. Um, so I think that kind of meta 
layer to the film, the fact that the Matrix Neo's story has been turned into a video game. I think that brilliantly reflects the way that our similar enslavement to technology has come true through, you know, Facebook, Instagram. Um, you know, we even say things like, you know, show us pictures of what you did over the weekend or it didn't happen. So we're already kind of questioning our own realities um, through these sort of simulated societies. Yeah. Um, Unfortunately, by also, the way, you mentioned uh, the red pill and and uh, or, or at least the, the idea of people being you didn't mention the red pill. I was thinking that. Sorry. You mentioned uh, uh, how social media ties into that. Unfortunately, um, there are like a lot of really terrible people that have also taken the red pill uh, uh, idea of getting out of the reality and seeing the truth. Um, and so there's like a whole, there's like a whole community of people, uh, that, uh, are basically this group surrounding like the red pill and, and talking about how they're <laughs> opening it up. Oh God. Sorry. That was a complete tangent, but I just couldn't break it from my mind. Continue, please. No, it's, I mean, that's an important point too. I mean, you know, you have a lot of, you know, asshole MAGA supporting people saying that, you know, they're they're buying into the the truth that COVID is a hoax or whatever bullshit they're following, um, but uh, um, you know I think other than that kind of meta philosophical uh, level, I think the movie works really well simply as a love story. Um, you know, another spoiler alert is that you come to learn in this film that Neo and Trinity truly complete one another. Um, there's a really emotional and kind of breathtaking scene near the end where they jump off of a building and, um, you know, they're floating in midair and you find out that uh, Neo isn't holding them with his flying powers. It's actually Trinity. And, you know, she can fly as well. And it's like they've come together as one. And I love the idea of, you know, two people kind of completing each other. I think that's a beautiful idea. And, you know, I, I think it, it, uh, it's also a very socially progressive uh, message that the, the future is female. Um, you know, it's a, it's a, it ends on a note of female empowerment, um, which, you know, you can also see as a personal statement from Lana Wachowski, you know, in, in her transition into becoming a, uh, you know, a woman, a uh, transgender woman. Um, so, um, you know, I, I think... I've heard some people say that it's, you know, it's not as philosophically complex as the first matrix and, you know, it, it isn't. Um, but I would say that it, uh, you know, the emotional stakes, the love story, the, the, you know, the meta uh, subplot involving the, the matrix game. Um, you know, I think all of those things are great. And, 
you know, some people say the, the meta stuff doesn't work, but, you know, I'd rather, I would rather see a, a legacy sequel kind of take a big swing for the fences than just, uh, uh, you know, deliver kind of a trip down memory lane. Um, so I would say those are some of the main reasons I really appreciated this Matrix sequel. Well, I'll tell you, I'm going to start with a controversial statement for you, Sam. Okay. (laughs) I'm ready. For all the listeners, his face completely changed. He's ready, bracing for the blow. Um, (laughs) There's a line where Jonathan Groff, who plays Smith, uh, says something along the lines of, Warner Brothers is going to make a sequel with or without you, so you might as well do it, right? Talking to uh, Neo and and making another game and all of these things. He's trying to get him involved. And I, I heard that line, and I just imagine that that's what happened with Lana Wachowski. <laughs> like, they're just yeah. like, we're going to make another Matrix movie, and you can either be a part of it or not. Luckily, uh, Lily made the right choice, in my view, and uh, walked away. <laughs> <laughs> so it's uh, Lana Wachowski's movie here. Listen, I, I'm, I'm just uh, digging at you, really. I wanna, I'm going to first start by praising a few things here, okay? Not about this film particularly, but just kind of talking positively about The Matrix. I rewatched sure. the first Matrix movie. Uh, let me go back even further. My wife and I were driving home from where I don't remember, and uh, I was like, you know, a new Matrix came out. It's on HBO, and she's like, oh yeah, we should watch it. But I want to see the I want to see the first one again. And I'm like, okay, I haven't seen it in forever. I'm curious if it holds up to me because I've always loved that movie. So we get home and we watch the first Matrix, and I'm like, this is a fucking perfect movie. Like, I just think it's just so great. The if I had to nitpick anything, it's the painfully 90s action music during the fight scenes. But that also holds like a place in my heart. So it's like that's a five-star movie to me. Like, I love that movie. And I'm like, yeah, um, yeah, I'm ready to watch Resurrections. I don't think I was like, we can just watch a video uh about the others. And she goes, Wait, there are other ones? <laughs> Like she didn't know there were sequels. <laughs> so we watched like this video getting her caught up. Cause she's like, I don't want to watch two more movies. I want to watch this. One. I'm like, all right, we'll just do it. So I kind of, it fills her in or whatever. And so we watched the matrix resurrections and watching the first movie, like, dude, it really did kind of blow my mind. I've always loved that regardless of how I feel about the sequels. I've always loved that as a standalone thing. Like it works on its own. At the end, Neo flies off. He's the one. We've heard about what the one's going to do. All the rest can be implied. Like we don't have to have a sequel. We can, but we don't have to, right? So I always love that. And then they filmed Reloaded and Revolutions together, and they did those uh, uh, later. And those feel more akin to each other, I would say, than even the first one, though it does kind of follow uh, that same thing. And I want to say this too. Because a lot of what you were saying was conceptual. It's on the page, right? And I think I think with Reloaded, dude, like the the French restaurant owner, dude, I forget his name. I'm going to forget all their names. I'm just letting you know this. I'm really bad at that. And who also makes an appearance in this. Um, but he has, like, during the scene where they're in that restaurant, you see those uh, two, like, albino twins, basically. And they can, like, phase in and out. You know, of, of sh- and those fight scenes are conceptually interesting. I love the concept. I love the concept of the keymaker guy. That is fucking awesome. I love that concept. I love the concept of the architect. 
that whole sequence I actually like as an independent scene. Like that whole, a lot of people hate that scene. I actually like the architect in co concept. I mean, the Oracle, all of them. I think the ideas here are so interesting. Revolutions, I'm totally also fine with completing the story mostly in the real world outside of the Matrix. I think that's also interesting. I think building and developing the ideas of a human colony outside of the Matrix is an interesting concept. Um, unfortunately, I don't really appreciate Resurrections on that level, uh, though I do think the video game thing is the obvious choice. Like, that's the way... Like, that's a good choice. That's the way you should go, right? I don't mind the analyst, in theory. Um, I don't mind Smith still being around. I, I'm not a huge fan, but I don't mind that. Um, you know, a, a lot of these things, uh, that there's, like, a new Morpheus because, like, it's a different time. And, okay, like, I, I get these things. I, I don't hate them in concept. What I don't like is the execution of all of these things, okay? The first movie's perfect. We're excluding the first movie, and we don't even need to talk about the two sequels just because that's not the point, though we can go back, uh, whatever you want to do with that. But the execution of this, going back to Jonathan uh, Groff's Smith in the movie saying the Warner Brothers line about, like, they're going to do it anyways, you might as well do it. This just feels like a studio has their thumb all over this, man. And uh, it, it, everything feels, like, convoluted to me. Um, everything feels... You feel convoluted. <laughs> <laughs> there's, um... there's this, this is something I hate. This is something I hate about, Mar like, the MCU movies. This is something I hate about a lot of the big blockbusters like that, is... When a movie is shot and I feel like the actors are in a green screen warehouse, mm. I hate that look. I don't like it won't ruin a movie for me, but if I already don't like it that much, it will make me hate it. Okay. <laughs> There's something about the way the lighting feels artificial. It feels very impractical, unlike the other things. So again, I'm talking about execution here, okay? Um yeah. uh, I can't, I, and I'm going to spitball a ton of stuff at you as well. So you're welcome to retort with whatever you want after this. I think Jonathan okay. Groff and Neil Patrick Harris are so terribly miscast that they actually ruined the movie for me, uh, largely. I don't even think they're bad by the... in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to keep throwing these little fallacies. So um, Jonathan Groff is Smith. Now, I, I, I am going to pass this off to you when we talk about this, and then you can go back and, and touch on anything else I said here. Sure. But I, I, do, I just want to start here, man, because I'm so curious if you liked this, why? Uh, again, that question is going to come up a lot. Because the I'm just going to keep calling him Agent Smith because calling him Smith sounds stupid, even though he's not an agent really anymore. Um, he's like an independent entity now, uh, which... Which goes through the... I mean, you see that hap that transition happen throughout the films. But uh, Smith, played by Jonathan Groff, this dude, I understand that they kind of make a reason for why he is different and he's evolved. Um, he is never going to be Hugo Weaving. And I'm, I'm not one of those purists that's like, he should be Hugo Weaving. Have a different person. I don't care. This is not Smith. Like, at all. 
I wish this was just a different, like maybe this is one of like the other agents, you know, <laughs> that didn't have a name or whatever, <laughs> or like the these like <laughs> other guys. It's like, hey, I kind of did what Smith did. I don't care. I, dude, again, nothing against Jonathan Groff as an actor. Like maybe in other roles, great. I actually, I've seen him in other stuff, but I can't place what I'd have to look it up. But this, dude, I just, every time he's on the screen, I wanted to jump off a building like they do at the end, but I won't save myself. Um, and then the other thing is uh, Neil Patrick Harris. I like Neil Patrick Harris. You know what? One thing that shows me he can be a serious guy is in Gone Girl, where he is still this, uh, and I'm not as huge on the movie as you are, uh, but I still liked it overall, Gone Girl. But he, like, his character in it and that sequence is really great. Um, but like, he's still kind of a goofball a little bit, but it comes off very creepy, like different. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's not like that works perfectly in what Fincher's trying to execute there. And this, they have sent what I loved about like the architect and the key master and stuff is these were like very serious characters that you could actually like buy into, uh, like painfully serious to the point of they bore people. Okay. And I actually like that. I'm fine with it. But Neil Patrick Harris as a as a villain, not just as a villain, he could be a villain. He was a I would argue he was a villain in Gone Girl. But uh, dude, just come on this this does not feel like a Matrix movie to me, um, and it's largely because of these choices I'm talking about. The execution of the of the production is even if they're using similar techniques to what they did in the original. It doesn't feel fresh anymore, and it doesn't feel like those movies anymore to me. And Agent Smith and fucking the analyst, dude, defend if you must. Can you please start, however? You can talk about production, but can you please start with Jonathan Groff and Neil Patrick Harris? How do you feel about them? I'm not going to give you shit. Give me your honest opinion. I probably will eventually, but not now. I'm going to take it serious. How do you feel about these two clowns? Well, with Jonathan Groff, I really hate and resent you for the fact that you brought up points I actually agree with. <laughs> um, I, uh, I, I agree that he is um, one of the weaker elements of the movie and, you know, nowhere near as uh, menacing as Hugo Weaving was as Agent Smith. Um, I do love the idea, though, that Agent Smith was based on Thomas Anderson's boss and his dynamic with his boss as the analyst tries to convince him through therapy. Mm -hmm. um, however, I think Jonathan Groff wasn't uh, threatening enough. I, I would have loved to have seen a sort of swimming with sharks dynamic between him and Keanu Reeves. Uh, I didn't really uh, sense that much tension between them as, yeah. you know, boss and employee. Um, I want to say I something about this before you move forward. So rem take a break when you're done with Groff, because I want to comment on that, but please continue. Oh, I'll just say that, you know, if Agent Smith was based on his boss in the game, I thought there should have been much more tension between them. And I just didn't feel that tension. So I'll open that up to you then. Groff and Reeves in the movie. So Neo and, and Smith. 
We have a trilogy prior to this where they are 100% at odds with one another. It is the feud of a lifetime. It is an irreparable feud. It is to the death, and we see this by the completion of the trilogy. This reminds me of wrestling feuds, okay? I'm a big wrestling fan, as most people know. Uh, I don't mean to throw Sam into that. You may claim to be or not to be based on your experience, but I'm a huge wrestling fan. I recognize wrestling is not reality. Uh, I love the what they call kayfabe nature of it, meaning the story they're telling and acting like it's real. There's a whole, like being in on it is so fun. You get to watch all these stories. And one thing that they do with two feuding people sometimes is the general manager of the wrestling show will come out and say, if you two don't get it together, you know what? You guys, if you hate each other so much, we'll see how well you guys can stay together. I'm putting you both in a tag team against so-and-so next week on the show, right? And so it's about, like, can these two people work together to get a win, or will they fall apart during the match, right? Will they hate each other so much that they sabotage one another? This is a common story that has happened for decades and probably 50 years or more. They've been doing this in wrestling. Can you put a, a good guy that is in a feud with a bad guy in a tag team and have them fight someone else to see if they can hold it together? You know, and usually it's a punishment or it's, you know, it's something for them because they did something stupid. That's, Essentially, what the analyst and uh, and Neo are doing here, right? They have a common enemy, so they are going to essentially put their differences aside, and they are going to work together to make this happen. But once it's done, like fair game, like whatever happens happens. But up to that point, they're gonna they're gonna try to be civil, right? I'm trying to be kind of like a good critic in talking about this because I just want to say make really shallow statements. <laughs> like, like this is so stupid. <laughs> like, you know, um, but I, I own that opinion. That's just my opinion. I just think, to me, and for other people it might not, and I'm assuming it won't for you, okay? And you can correct me where I'm wrong. But this partnership of them, I didn't buy it from the beginning. And it seems to essentially... I don't want to say the word ruin because I don't think it ruins the trilogy at all or like the quadrilogy at this point. But it it undermines this vicious rivalry and further convolutes, in my opinion, further convolutes the story. Why is Smith even in this? Like, I feel like it could easily be written around. You know what I mean? Like, because I'm, let me just say this real quick. I am down with the love story, okay? If you're going to do, I mean, I don't really like it, but it's like, if that's going to be the focus, focus on that. Like, I get it. And that is largely the focus of this movie. And I appreciate that there is a focus. But this Smith thing, man, like just commenting on what you said, like, did you really buy this or was it something you could just kind of brush off or did this bother you? Like, this just sucked to me. And I'm just curious what your feelings are uh, about this in execution. Well. Honestly, I it didn't bother me until now. I uh, I realize, you know, in hindsight that you're right. Like Neo and Agent Smith, um, I feel like the dynamic uh, between um, Thomas Anderson and Groff is so much uh, so much more watered down in comparison between, 
you know, Neo and Agent Smith, like if if Smith was actually based on his boss, you know, like they would have had a much more contentious relationship than they do in Resurrections. I mean, they they essentially just have that one meeting together. Um, and there's a little bit of tension, but you don't get the sense that Thomas Anderson like hates this guy. Yeah. And, he's just mad because um, this guy's trying to force him to make more games, basically. <laughs> I mean, like, right. like that's ultimately it. I would argue, however, that I, I do think it's pretty bold for Lana Wachowski to admit her own reluctance in making this sequel and even calling out Warner Brothers. Um, I, I actually think that's a pretty bold move uh, for a legacy sequel. Um, and uh, it's not like that really hasn't been done before. Um, you know, this isn't a, a great comparison, but uh, you know, Wes, uh, Wes Craven's new nightmare. Yeah you know, calls out new line in a, in a slightly similar way. So, it, you know, it's not unprecedented, but um, I would argue that that actually is pretty bold for a sequel to do. I wish uh, that had been explored a little bit more. I feel like the development of the matrix game is kind of reduced to basically a, a montage sequence. Um, I would have liked to have seen a, a little bit more, but I do think that it is that the meta stuff is, you know, pretty fun and, and, and pretty unexpected. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, okay. Yeah. So I, I get your point there and I, I'm glad that we kind of like partially see eye to eye. And I agree with you also that, um, it was bold because as soon as they brought up the, the Warner brothers line, even though Lana didn't technically write this, it makes me wonder if Lana kind of was like, hey, guys, put this in there. <laughs> uh, right. and, and also, it would have to be okay to some extent by Warner Brothers. Maybe they just played it off as a joke, but it's actually some sort of like bitterness uh, from Lana Wachowski through the through the words of David Mitchell and Alexander Heman. But um, yeah, but I, I agree. That's, that's a pretty bold move. Doesn't make the movie better for me. However, I do like that. I agree with you there. But what yeah. about Neil Patrick Harris, though? Because I stopped you before you got there. Can you please tell right. me how you feel about the the analyst? Because, again, I don't so much have a problem with the concept of the analyst existing. That's not where my issue is, okay? Honestly, yeah. I'm such a big fan of the concepts of The Matrix and the first film that, uh, like, I'm actually, like, I didn't give this, like, a one out of five or anything. You know? <laughs> like, it wasn't that, like, I actually gave it a two out of five. And... Those two are because, quite frankly, I just love the ideas of the Matrix. Like, con yeah. conceptually, that's going to win at some points, period. You know, like, just off the off the bat. I remember seeing the first Matrix movie long after it had already come out. I saw it on DVD. Um, and it just blew my mind. And it made me talk to people about, like, what if we are in the Matrix, dude? Of course I knew we weren't. But, like, to have those kind of, like, existential conversations and those philosophical um, you know, discussions about such things was really fun to me. And so, um, you know, that kind of blew, it just blew my mind. And so, I, you know, I like that they took some different directions in Resurrections because they're never going to get that. They're never going to make you have right. that same response. So I, I, I appreciate that they took it in different directions. 
I cannot justify Neil Patrick Harris in this role, and I'm curious if you want to, first off, and if so, how can you? <laughs> His performance? All of um, it. <laughs> all of it. Okay, I'll, uh, I know you said you didn't want to, like, you were fine with the concept of the character. I just want to touch on that a little bit. Um, I do love the idea of a therapist being involved in the story. I think that's a great way of keeping Thomas Anderson from the truth. Yeah. Um, the medication, you know, uh, all of those things is makes a lot of sense. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the sequence where he is about to be, uh, you know, taken back into the real world, but he's sort of pulled in by the analyst by his therapist who's saying you know this isn't this isn't real this is all in your mind i thought that sequence was actually terrifying and really effective um because it is kind of a crazy thing that thomas anderson has to grapple with um you know he's he's wrestling between two realities that are sort of equally bizarre um and he has to choose one of them and it's almost it's almost a bigger pickle than the one in the original matrix um you know now he has designed a game based on memories and the memories feel real and but his therapist is telling him that they're not i mean i i think that was actually like uh a really great conflict that I was invested in in terms of Neil Patrick Harris's performance. Well, before you get to um, performance, let, I want to comment on, on what you just said. Cause I love what you just said. Sure. So tell me this though. Do you think that could have been better developed? Because I want to say this dude, when he, when he starts, stops taking his pills and he starts remembering this shit and he starts kind of freaking out and he looks in a mirror yeah. And Neil Patrick Harris is the analyst is through that mirror trying to pull him yeah. back into essentially like slavery, you know, like or or or, or uh, <laughs> oppress him further to, uh, you know, just ba basically make him a vegetable that just like walks through the matrix without knowing uh, that his uh, past is real. Um, that is an awesome concept. And we get like yeah. one scene of that. And then before that, we see him yeah. try to get pulled in. Uh, by Neil Patrick Harris in the meeting that they have, like their session. And he's saying, it just feels so real. Neil, Neil Patrick Harris is trying to talk about it. We get a few scenes of that, but you get the like one scene and it's pretty quick of the, what you're talking about that moment, which is really great. But like, I just feel like every time those things happen again, conceptually they're cool. And in execution, what we get is you use this term before a watered down version of what these could have been. Because this concept yeah. is really fascinating and could be developed. If this was literally just a love story and only in the last 30 minutes did they get out of the Matrix, I wouldn't give a shit. I don't need Niobe. Yeah. I actually find Niobe really annoying in this movie. Um, and yeah. uh, I, I don't. I think Yahya Abdul-Mateen II is awesome, like as an actor. Like he does really awesome work. But dude, yeah. like to, to my understanding, uh, what the fuck's his name? Um Lawrence Fishburne was never even asked to do this. Now, I know he couldn't do any of the stunt work and stuff, but yeah. quite frankly, like, you could still... I just think they had a really good story here, like, with the love story and these ideas with the analysts, that this could almost be, like, um, 
some like fucked up Darren Aronofsky movie or something. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like it could be some like weird cerebral <laughs> yeah. movie, but they had to force in these like action set pieces and stuff because it's the matrix and that's what it is. And that's what a lot of those things felt like to me. Sure. And I, I want you to talk about Neil Harris, uh, Neil Patrick Harris's performance because I did cut you off. But if you'd like to respond to what I said, please do. I just it, like I. It's not even that I disagree with what you're saying. It's more of like execution. You could have developed this so it meant something, yeah. and instead we have this one scene that independently is cool, but in the context of the film leaves me cold. And that's my opinion. What do you think? I actually think that's really valid. And, um, you know, honestly, I could have done away completely uh, with everything that takes place in the real world uh, with Niobe. To me, that entire sequence is kind of pointless. I agree. Um, and I like I would have loved a good hour and a half of the the meta stuff and a few more scenes with the therapist and then, you know, 30 minutes of, of action. And I was a big um, fan too, of when Trinity who I forget her name. What was, uh, what was her name in, in this movie? Uh, Tiffany. Tiffany. That's right. Yeah. I just pulled it up and saw it right when you said that. Uh, but yeah, when, when uh, Trinity, I'm just going to call them by their matrix names or whatever, <laughs> but like Trinity and Neo as Thomas and Tiffany, you know, right. uh, which is such a funny name for Trinity to me, which, of course, they play with that in the movie. It's it's funny. But right. I love when they first meet in the cafe and they know there's some connection here, but they don't right. know what it is. Right. So it's like this semi awkward, you know, like just kind of like weird happenstance meeting. Right. Um, and, and I, I, I did really love that. Um, and, and you're talking about, man, if we could just cut out all of that other shit and have an hour and a half of this stuff. I would love to have more of that. Of course, I'm a, I'm like, I'm that guy. Like I would prefer that over like, like all of the other stuff, right? I don't need to see him be disconnected from the matrix again. It looked better than the original. Okay. Right. <laughs> In my opinion. So it's like, I don't need to see a lesser version of that. Show me more of that. Like show me more of that awkwardness. Show me more of that connection they have without them understanding it because we as viewers know what their connection is, but they don't. And I love playing with that idea. I'm sorry I interrupted you again. You keep bringing up like good points that I want to like touch on before we move forward, but please continue. Oh no, that's all right. But I do think, you know, uh, what's frustrating is that you, Lana Wachowski calls out her own reluctance to make this sequel. Um, but then she kind of falls into some sequel traps by basically delivering what it seems like the studio wanted. Um, you know, I, I have a feeling that it was the studio's call to not have as much meta stuff and to involve more action. And I actually think that the action here is largely pretty weak. Um, I, I don't think the fight scenes um, are nearly on the same level as the original movie. Um, to me, the the only one that really like blew me away was near the end uh, uh, with the helicopters and the you know the motorcycle uh, uh, sort of chase through the the swarm. Uh, yeah. 
people or whatever. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, I I just I would have loved um, more development with the analyst. Um, I do love how he kind of uh, talks like a gamer. Um, you know, at one point he says like swarm mode is sick fun um uh, I, oh my god um, <laughs> uh you know i did kind of like that i think um uh i kind of had the same problem that i did with uh jonathan groff i don't think uh, neil patrick harris is quite menacing enough um but uh I don't know. It's like that middle section that really drags to me because I think the, the meta stuff in the beginning is great. If a bit underdeveloped, I think the middle section in the real world is kind of pointless. I could have done without that completely. And I think the third act um, is, you know, that really kind of had my jaw on the floor, especially in the, kind of climactic moments between uh, Neo and Trinity, just kind of seeing them back together again um, and, you know, seeing Trinity kind of on the same level as Neo, I thought that was really inspiring and and moving. Um, So, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I just, uh, I, I agree with you. The middle, the middle, portion though it might have a few good ideas within um i could do with that honestly i wish even if they needed to have an opening action sequence which i with what they did with it i don't think they needed to but if they if the studio felt like they needed to have one at the beginning have one at the end and let the story just be organic and tell itself because you're going to have one at the beginning to get the audience's attention who are expecting a matrix movie and then, yeah. uh, you know, it moves through the story to make us care so that by the third act, we get that stuff that made your jaw hit the floor, right? Unfortunately yeah. for me, though, because I wanted to have that experience, because, again, I love The Matrix, but the opening sequence is a bunch of essentially, like, borderline to blatant rehash of the first film, and it's not as cool, in my opinion. <laughs> so it's like, like, that's automatically a bummer. And then... Uh, the end, which I see what you're saying, but I just did not have that experience at all. And I think it's largely because of that middle portion didn't earn it for me. So it just felt forced. And that was unfortunately my experience. And But I think you can see why that would be based on how I experienced the film. You know, it had, had it been developed and had I cared more, maybe I'd have been like, fuck yeah, like stay together. Because that action sequence you're talking about where they're on the bike and they're just like, all these people are just like running out. Like that again is cool in concept. And even watching it, there were times where I was like, this is pretty cool. Cause aren't people like jumping off buildings and shit, <laughs> like trying to like essentially like bomb them. Oh yeah. Um, with like that shit's crazy, dude. Like <laughs> right. that's wild. I'm, I'm into that. Yeah. I just, it, there's a, a, a phrase I use all the time, you know, is earn it. And I just didn't feel like it did. And I just like could not go there. Cause I liked the idea of what was happening. And I just really wish it didn't feel like just an added sequel. You know what I mean? I, I wish like it yeah. really felt like something that Lana put a lot of time and effort in 
and had the same impact. When I say the same impact as the first, I don't mean to have the same full cultural impact. I mean, that movie changed action films. It it advanced our technical aspects of film and how we shoot fight scenes. I mean, there is a polar difference between prior to 1999 action sequences and after the matrix, you know, like, like, (laughs) so it's like, I mean, you can see this everywhere. And I I love this, even if not only for that, I love what the matrix has done for movies. Right. But this didn't have any kind of uh, weight for me or uh, it didn't even do anything on that level where it was like, it was pushing the boundaries of something. And who knows? I, you know, I, I don't think this had like the hugest budget, but at the same time, the first matrix, which did have a good budget, don't get me wrong. Uh, but they pulled off shit that they shouldn't have been able to with that budget. <laughs> you right. know, like they were very creative with how they got around that. And I just wish that uh, the Matrix Resurrections had fulfilled kind of the same thing. If you're if you're going to make a movie and you have to, unless the studio was forcing you to do something, which very well may have happened here. I'm sure, like I said, it feels to me like their thumb was kind of like... Uh, a kind of oppressing this a bit. Um, but yeah, I just feel like this, I just wish that that uh, Lana Wachowski had maybe, uh, I don't know, just ma- made me feel the same passion that I feel in the first Matrix. You know, again, mm-hmm. n- not to compare the two, they're different, I want them to be different, I do not want them to be the same. But just being able to explore these ideas in a way that doesn't feel either like a rehash or kind of like a convoluted, watered-down version of it. Does that make sense to you when I say that, or am I just, like, breaking oh, totally. your hopes and dreams right now? Oh, no, no, no. I, I think all those points are valid, and I certainly understand them. Um, I guess I just... Uh, the kind of emotional weight... Uh, I guess I just... I felt the emotional weight more than you sure. did. yeah. But I think your criticisms are totally valid, and I actually agree with a lot of them. Um, I guess my my nostalgia kind of kicked in um, a, uh, a little harder than than yours did. Um, I do think it's telling that some of the most powerful moments in the movie are flashbacks from the original Matrix. Uh, just kind of seeing those scenes again on the big screen. I, was, I agree. Yeah. Uh, there was something, you know, really kind of bittersweet about that. I'm really so moving. glad that they didn't try to make them look like they did then and try to yeah. add scenes that weren't in the original. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I'm very glad <clears throat> that they did have uh, proper flashbacks. I agree. Um, and like that scene, uh, you know, when they're taking him back into the real world and there's a, you know, uh, a screen projecting footage from the original movie like yeah. that. That really worked for me. That that's that was kind of a magical moment for yeah. me. But it's supposed to be the game, I believe, which is yeah. great because <laughs> it's like the same, you know. It, it, I mean that. Right. Yeah, that's cool. I just want to say this real quick, touching on what I said, because I want to make a point here. Sure. So I forgot that it had this much. One hundred ninety million dollars. Okay, this is comparable to a lot of uh, mid-tier or early franchise MCU movies. Okay. 
So going to one of the beloved films, Captain America Winter Soldier, which came out in 2014, had a comparable budget of 170 to 177 million. So only, you know, less less than 20 million dollars, maybe 15 million or so uh, less. Uh, but uh, with what The Matrix does with 190 million dollars, where is all of this money going? I understand that seven or eight years has passed here, okay? But $190 million, I just I just demand more. I don't know. Sorry, I kind of like <laughs> like halted what you were saying because I found uh, this like, and, and yeah. thought of it. I just don't understand, man. I, but but the nostalgia thing, you, you, you did bring that up. And, and I just, uh, I have a question for you in response to that. Whenever you, say you played a video game when you were a kid and you find out a video game movie's coming out or when Mortal Kombat came out in 2020 and it's like, you know, you like the original movies maybe. Like, I still like them as like schlocky, like whatever. You know what I mean? Like, they're really yeah. funny to me. Uh, but then like the new ones coming out or whatever, Batman, it could be anything. Do you get like hyped? Are you like, oh yes, like a new Whatever, like this series I love or this thing that I love or this character I love has a movie coming out. Are you one that gets like super hyped when you hear about that? Uh, I mean, when I heard about the Matrix sequel, I was pretty hyped. Um, I, I was late for a, a work meeting because I was watching the first trailer. <laughs> um, I I mean, that was like this Matrix sequel, the the buildup to it and the hype for me was pretty overwhelming, I would say. Yeah. I tend to um, like X-Men. I'm a huge X-Men fan. Always have been. They've always been my favorite Marvel property. Just, it's just like I'm a huge fan. And, you know, I liked the first two X-Men movies like way back in the late 90s, early 2000s or whatever. Um, I like uh, I like the Days of Future Past. And there pretty much aren't any other X-Men movies that I like. And every time an X-Men movie comes out, I don't get excited anymore. I just go like, huh. oh, come on. Like, why are you doing this again? Even with the, with the, uh, the or no, 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 what is it? Uh, Logan. I was nervous about that. And then I saw it and I fucking yeah. love that movie. Like, don't get me wrong. But uh, like, yeah. I was super nervous because it's like, dude, you're doing, like, I didn't even hate the Wolverine, to be honest. I just thought the end really sucked. But like, the movie itself was fine, but it was like, I, I just don't, I, I'm too nervous about studios ruining things these days. Now, when I found out that, uh, that Darren Aronofsky was originally tied to the Wolverine, I thought, holy shit, I want to see that movie because that will not be normal. Right. Like that's going to be very bizarre. Right. Um, or like hearing that, uh, Robert Eggers was originally meant to do like a Nosferatu remake. Or something. It's like, mm. dude, now the Northman looks fucking awesome. Don't get me wrong. But it's like, I want to see that dude's Nosferatu remake because I don't think he'll fucking ruin it. Okay? Right. But whenever it's like a studio, like when I first heard about the Matrix Resurrections, that was my response. Is it was like, dude, I fucking love the Matrix. But come on. Like, again, like there's no way this is good. And I didn't even quite understand the trailer because it's like, why is he in the Matrix again? <laughs> I was like super confused, um, but I knew I was going to watch it. And so I, I ask you that question because I think there are those two kinds of people, right? Like some people that are like, oh, I love this franchise and they're making a new one. Like when Bill and Ted, that sequel came out, when was that? 2020 or something or 2019 or whatever yeah. it was. 
like a lot of my coworkers where I was working at the time were just like, oh, dude, a new Bill and Ted movie because they love the first two. And I'm like, do you actually think it will be like those two movies? I haven't seen it, so I can't speak to it. I didn't watch it that year. Um, but my point is, I can't imagine it actually being like the other movies. <laughs> you know, I mean, it probably, it's probably a nostalgia filter, right? Like you watch it because you love this thing and it's fine. Um, but yeah, so I, I just, I tend to have like much more res reservations coming into something if I love it, because it's like, I just don't, I don't trust, uh, the studios to do it. And I thought to kind of back your point, because Lana Wachowski was involved, I was really happy to see that an original filmmaker, though, uh, her sibling was not involved, but still one of the originals was involved. Uh, that made me really happy. So I did have a bit more hope because of that um but i see you there uh i, I just i was just <laughs> curious where you fit with that I, I will admit that i wouldn't be nearly as excited if lana wachowski weren't involved uh i guess that's what you know gave me confidence that it would be good yeah that makes sense yeah um so uh all of the other points i have i don't even want to talk about unless you bring them up so <laughs> Uh, do you have any other any kind of final comments that you want to talk about with the Matrix? Anything else that we haven't talked about? Anything you want to bring up that you liked or disliked? Give me your th your kind of final thoughts on it here. Yeah, um, uh, you know, I mean, it, it's not it's not like a five star movie for me. Um, this is you know probably like four out of five stars, but um, I I would say that. While it is a little underdeveloped in some areas, I would rather see something that takes a few bold swings rather than something that follows a kind of cookie cutter sequel formula. Um, so I guess, I guess that's why I ultimately appreciate it. I think it's bold enough and you know, kind of eccentric enough and uh, uh, you know, also emotional enough. I mean, I, I think, uh, like I said, you know, the love story really got me. Um, so I, you know, it's it's an imperfect movie, but I would rather see something that uh, you know swings for the fences than than uh, a sequel that just kind of goes through the motions. Yeah. Uh, I, I, my oldest friend in the world, his name's Riley. Uh, he visits me every once in a while. We watch movie. We'll watch like in a weekend, we'll watch like 15 movies or something, you know, like nonstop. <laughs> he's like my movie friend. He kind of introduced me to movies that got me into movies and he's the guy. And, uh, but he loves unique things. He wants a movie to be different. If it's like, a, dude, we watched, uh, Looper. All right. The, the Ryan Johnson nice. movie Looper. And he was mad because it was a ripoff of La Jete, Terminator, and like 12 months. I don't remember what he said. And I'm like, dude, this is nothing like Terminator. Like, I get what you mean. I get the idea of going back in time to change. You know, I get all of those things. But this movie's execution and the way it tells the story is nothing like these movies you're talking about. And um, right. so whenever he listens to music, when I used to play metal uh, like that was like my life was like to be in a touring metal band and I would listen to bands a lot of times I wanted uh, a band that just did it right I don't care if it's unique just do it well 
And if you are also unique, fucking awesome. Like you're now the best, right? Like, but like, I'd rather you, instead of trying to be unique and failing, I'd rather you be cookie cutter and do it exceptionally well. Uh, my friend Riley, however, was like, no, it has to, I already have one band that sounds like this. I don't need 15 others. I want just this one. And I would rather someone take the risk. And he would appreciate that even if he didn't like the music. I have always been the safer person. I loved John Wick. We've seen that fucking story a million times. There's nothing yeah. exceptional about the narrative there, right? But I think it sure. does that narrative fucking awesome. And that is why I love that. Were it trying to do something super crazy and like bold but fail at it, I would be like really disappointed and not big on that movie. I'm talking about myself. I'm not claiming anything or or responding to anything you said. I'm more just kind of like giving sure. you my thoughts on that. And so like I honestly like there are times where I watch a movie. And I felt this way about like Pig, all right? Not to get into a big debate. I I like that movie a lot, but uh, that movie it follows a certain kind of formula that you're used to, and then it's all about the subversion of that formula, right? Like the whole point of the movie yep. is that it breaks that and it subverts those ideas. Um, and after I watched it, I didn't buy into the subversion. <laughs> so I was like, I wish this just would have been like a John Wick movie with Nick Cage now. Like, you know, but even though it was doing something really good, I agree. Like, I want that to be how it is. I don't need another cookie cutter revenge movie. But by the end, I was like, I kind of wish he would have just done the thing. Like, <laughs> you know, like I almost wish it was like this thing. Cause I just didn't buy into those subversive qualities. Um, I felt like the filmmaker was trying really hard to make, to subvert it. Right. Like it didn't feel as natural for me. Um, and so, yeah, I, I guess that's kind of where I stand. And maybe that's like a difference between our views on Matrix Resurrections as well, where like you you are uh, identifying and appreciating those things because they exist. Uh, it very easily could have been cookie cutter and nothing special, but you appreciate that it took these moves. I don't think they executed those moves well enough. Therefore, I couldn't buy into it. And I would have just accepted... Actually, even if it was a cookie cutter thing, I probably would have hated it. But... <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, like, I mean, I would rather be what it is than just a replica of the other movies. I agree there. Uh, but it's like, oh, my God, you had the yeah. potential here. You have all the pieces here. Do the thing. Because, Lana, you have the mind for it. You have the mind for it. We've seen it. Right. Do the thing. But um, anyways, yeah, I uh, I encourage people to check it out, though. Like, I'm not one of those people that's like, don't watch this. I would never say that. Have your own opinion. And if you agree or disagree with either me or Sam, you're welcome to hit us uh, medium cool up at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com, or you can hit us up mediumcoolpod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Um, Sam, before we close out here, tell people where they can find your stuff and what you're doing, man. Yeah, um, uh, you can find me at midwestfilmjournal.com. Um, later this week, I'll a review of uh scream five um and i'll also i'll be talking about the matrix resurrections again on uh obsessive viewer pod, uh obsessive viewer.com uh that's another podcast um so yeah scream huh this new one is that what you're talking about yeah i'm probably gonna love it too because it's visible and audible 
That's so good. This is a perfect <laughs> example of I'm very leery about this. That's a perfect. It's like, but the first one yeah. fucking rules. And the other ones are like schlocky and ridiculous. And then like we're doing a fifth yeah. one. I'll be curious to read your review um, and hear you talk about that sometime. Um, maybe we'll talk about it sometime uh, when I get a chance to see it. That yeah. comes out here soon as well. Uh, but Sam, thanks so much, man. I really appreciate you coming on and and debating with me about this Matrix movie <laughs> and loving. It, it was fun. It, it was fun. It wasn't as as vicious as I thought it was going to be. I actually agreed with several of your points because I'm right. It's fine. <laughs> 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 no, I'm kidding, man. I, I really appreciate uh, I appreciate your perspective, and I think we identified where we disconnect, though. You know what I mean? Like, where we are, and I think that's think fair. So. Uh, for the listeners to be able to go to HBO Max, check it out for themselves, and see which kind of side they're on, and hopefully they can identify why they liked it, too, because I feel like we kind of uh, offered both sides. So, anyways, until next time, buddy. Thanks. Oh, thank you. All right, that was our episode today. I want to thank Sam Watermeyer for coming on again. He's a good friend of mine. We go way back, all the way back to Ball State University when we were both students taking Wes Gehring courses. If you don't know who that is, that's, you know, whatever. Get with it here. <laughs> and uh, and he, he was even in one of the classes that I taught, a controversy in American cinema class that, uh, that I taught at Ball State. Uh, and he actually was one of my students. So uh, that's fun. And... Uh, yeah, we talked about Peter Bogdanovich and uh, his film Paper Moon. We also talked about The Matrix, Resurrections. I think I won. You know, I'm the host, and I get the final word because of this outro, so I think I won. It's fine. Um, you know, Sam can suck it. Anyways, uh, I'm really looking forward to next week. Uh, and seriously, thank you, Sam, if you listen to this. Uh, uh, you egotistical prick for listening to yourself. But whatever. Thank you for being on. Love you, man. Um Joe, Matthew Sosi, and I are going to be doing our top 10. So that's going to be 30 movies. I'm sure some of them will overlap. I don't know what their lists are. They don't know what mine is. Wait, they don't know what mine is. Yeah. And then I don't think they know what each other's is either. So uh, it's going to be fun. We have a, a bit of a new format. So I'm trying to cut down because last year it was like five hours across two episodes of us doing our top 10. That's freaking stupid. So uh, I'm going to try not to let that happen again this year. I have a different format. My hope is to go about an hour, hour and 15 for each episode. And, you know, hopefully only go half the time we did across two episodes last time. And I think that's pretty good for two episodes. Uh, so hopefully uh, it'll it, be fun. I, I know it will be. It'll be great. Uh, so we're going to do that again. Like I said before, the following week after we finish the top 10, uh, we will be, uh, it'll be Joe and I, we will be doing, we'll probably do some of our honorable mentions then as well, but also uh, we will be doing our most anticipated uh, films of 2022. I'm very excited to talk about that. Very excited. Uh, so that will be fun. So please tune in to that. Again, I'll probably do a either an entire episode or at least a, a, a lengthy segment on Sidney Poitier at some point just because of how important he was, uh, again, culturally and just, uh, you know, a, a black man and a lot of white movies, you know, especially during a time where white people dominated Hollywood and he was able to basically be a star. And I just think that's really impressive. And I'm excited to, you know, talk a bit about 
uh, Sidney Poitier and, you know, watch a couple of his movies that I've wanted to watch for a long time but haven't made it a priority, to be honest. So I'm excited to watch those and talk about them with you guys, or for you guys to hear, I guess. But until then, you know what's coming up now. And all I have left to say is I love you guys. Good night. Good luck. And take it easy. <laughs>